So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, our passage today is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. This is the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And they, he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. You know what to do. I would like to call a little bit of an audible and pray for the Huffmans over there. God, what a blessing this family has been to this church anybody who's been around uh, for, for any real length of time pre-COVID um, sees the joy in Christ in this family, even amidst real challenges. Uh, everything from the lack of sleep to the loss of life. God, this family has modeled, um, modeled their walk with you and modeled it well, and you have uh, seen fit to make them fruitful in many things that they do, including their work at UCF, and we thank you for this respite. We thank you for this break, which is good and right, and we pray that you would uh, deeply nourish this family in this season, and that all the ministry that, um, that has gone on will be faithfully led by other people, um, but we just thank you that they get this, this, um, this season, and we thank you that they even can model rest, which is first modeled by you. So we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, I want to thank Ben for stepping in last week and, uh, and really taking a very hard passage. And I think you did a great job of making it very clear and applicable. Uh, so thank you for doing that. It's fun to have men like Ben in the church who feel a call to vocational ministry and preaching specifically and be able to give them those types of opportunities here. Today, we're wrapping up Acts chapter 8. And if you've been kind of sitting through all these, uh, these different sermons on Acts, or if you've listened to somebody else preach Acts, or if you're just reading Acts on your own, you're going to see 
a, a recurring pattern here. And that recurring pattern is the gospel going out. So we've seen the gospel go out to Jerusalem. The gospel's gone out to Samaria. We've seen the gospel go out to some hard hearts and be rejected. We've seen the gospel go out to some very soft hearts and be received. We've seen the gospel go out in mass to thousands of people at one time. And here in this passage, we come to the gospel going from one person to another person. And this is actually the first recorded example in the New Testament of personal evangelism. We have Philip sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch. So I, I, don't, I think it's safe to say, and I think I could build a very strong argument around this, personal evangelism is the main way that God has designed the gospel to go forward. And I, I'm very thankful for you know, great evangelists and people who have ministered to countless people and led countless people into, uh, into the faith and people like Billy Graham or, you know, in our day, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, whoever it is. I'm very thankful for their ministries, but that's not the primary way that God has designed the gospel to go forward. The, the main design is from parent to child or from classmate to classmate or coworker to coworker, neighbor to neighbor. The primary way the gospel goes forward is by individuals sharing the gospel with other individuals. And it made me think this week about my first baby steps back in the day as a new believer in college into, uh, into personal evangelism. And if, if God, I don't know how God could have teed some of these evangelistic opportunities up any better than he did. I would have people who would come to me and say, Jim, your life's so different now. Uh, and I really like what I see and I'd like to have it myself. Can you tell me about this change in your life? I mean, it's like the perfect softball. Now, but I, I still, I'd be like, oh, I think you should go ask this guy with Campus Crusade. I'm sure he could explain it a lot better than I ever could. Because <laughs> you know, it's scary to share the gospel. You're, you're opening yourself to rejection and critique. And not just like, you know, re- critique on what you, how you dress or what sports teams you like. You're opening yourself to rejection of the most important thing that you believe in your whole life. And I, when we lived in Europe, we would go... I really, I, I don't think this is an overstatement. We would go months sharing the gospel every day and never seeing one person with any kind of interest in it. Never. Made me really jealous of my missionary friends over in China where it felt like you could just throw gospel tracts off buildings and churches started. That, that was not our, our situation over there in Europe. Now, some of you, you're not new to evangelism at all. Some of you, you have been faithfully sharing your faith for decades. Maybe there are people in your life, that specific family members or friends you've been praying for and trying to share the gospel with, and maybe you've just seen their, their heart grow even colder towards spiritual things and maybe towards you. So all of us come into this, uh, this topic, this idea of of personal evangelism from, from very different experiences. But what I want us to see in Philip's engagement with this Ethiopian eunuch, I want us to see something that hopefully is very encouraging. Philip's not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is God. And you can see the fingerprints of his providence all over the story in a way that hopefully encourages us that ultimately this is not on our shoulders to do. This is God who's accomplishing what he wants. We just get to be a part of it. And so I want to look at this first recorded example of of personal evangelism. And I want us to see God's providential circumstances, his providential call, and then his providential gifts. I'm just going to walk through the story and see those three things. So first, providential circumstances. 
this takes us to this interesting person, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, when they say Ethiopia back in that day, it's a much larger area than Ethiopia today. It would be like the whole upper Nile region. And this Ethiopian eunuch, we're, we're told, is in, he, he works as a court official for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, years and years, I thought the queen of Ethiopia at that time was named Candace. It's not the case. Candace isn't a name, it's a title. It means the queen mother. So he's basically the treasurer for the queen mother, which explains a lot. It explains uh, why he was able to make this, this journey. Um, this journey was long. This journey would have been expensive. This journey would have been dangerous. It also explains why he's a eunuch. So people with certain access to the royal family, those men were made eunuchs uh, because they wanted to at least um, minimize the opportunity for inappropriate activity in the house and at most make sure that no man steps in and takes the throne and the, the, the royal line. And I realized in the first service, uh, there's some children here who might be thinking, what is a eunuch? And I want you to know that's a great question. And at lunch today, I want you to ask your parents, what is a eunuch? Because I want you to know the Bible. All right, so this man's access to the royal family explains how he could make such a journey. But we still don't, the the real question, I think the more interesting question is why? Why would he make this journey? Because Luke records that he's on his way back home coming from Jerusalem where he was worshiping. So we have this African who is employed by the royal family who, who is just coming back to worshiping in Jerusalem. How did that happen? Well, we, we know he must be either a Jewish convert or a God-fearer. One of those two things have to be true, a Jewish convert or a God-fearer. A God-fearer is someone who has some sort of faith or, or interest in, um, in God. He can meet with rabbis. He can pray. Uh, he, can, he can pray in the synagogue, but he's not allowed to, to take part in the sacrifices. Um, so they're God-fearers. And he, he, he falls into one of those categories. We know that he's not, it's extremely unlikely that he's any kind of true Gentile pagan because A, he wouldn't have been worshiping over in Jerusalem. And B, Luke, if that's what we had, the first pagan Gentile to believe, like we do in chapter 10, Luke makes a big deal of that. So he would have made a big deal of this here. So we don't think that that's what's happening. And we don't know for sure why this African would make this journey, but I do think we have enough to have some fun speculating because he's coming from an area uh, in Ethiopia, which is the same area where the Queen of Sheba was. And if you remember Queen of Sheba back in the day of Solomon, she, she, had, she was very impressed by Solomon's teaching. They would visit each other. He would, he would teach, and presumably he'd teach the scriptures. Back in the days of Solomon, when the Queen of Sheba um, they, they knew each other. He taught, he taught the scriptures, presumably not just to Sheba, but he would have taught to lots of other people at the same time. So some people speculated that maybe uh, Solomon actually led people to the Lord in that area of Ethiopia, and that faith has continued down the line from generation to generation. Other people have speculated that when the dispersion actually happened, some of these Jews would have felt like, well, that would be a safe place to go because we have this relationship with, we had it with the Queen of Sheba, and they may still know people who, uh, who lived there. We don't know for sure, but clearly God is organizing some very providential things to make this moment happen where this African would, would interact with this person 
And it's so easy to just overlook the fact that in every single conversion, there are providential circumstances leading up to it. I've, I've heard a lot of adult uh, conversion stories. And, and some of, for some of them, it, you know, for some people grew up in a Christian home and God's providential circumstances is placing them in that home. And that, that seems very ordinary, but it's providential. But when I get to adult conversions, and I've, I've heard a lot of testimonies, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say, I don't know, I just woke up and decided to follow Jesus today. I, I, there's always these circumstances that lead people to the Lord. And some of them, some of them are pain points. Some of, some of them, it's loss. For others, it's realization that the things that I hold most dear in the world, I'm realizing they're not satisfying me the way that, that they should, or at least the way that I want them to. That, that was my story. But for everybody, whatever those providential circumstances are, in comes the right person at the right moment to say the right thing. And the longer I go, I think the easier it is to see some of these providential circumstances. Like if, you, if you've been kind of know what to look for, you see people and you see the, the puzzle pieces of their life coming together in such a way that you just ask God, what are you doing over there? Like, what, I feels like you're doing something. All these things happening in this person's life. And it makes us want to kind of pray for that person more. It makes us want to be around that person more. Maybe even engage them a little bit more. Because we, we have life experience that says these providential circumstances can be God's work in their life. Certainly like it is here with the Ethiopian eunuch. So that's what we, we see. At the very moment that Philip approaches, what is this Ethiopian doing? He's, he's reading Isaiah, and he's reading aloud, which was the practice back then. They would read, read aloud more than the, like we would more often read silent here. They would read aloud. So Philip approaches, and this eunuch isn't just reading aloud. He's reading Isaiah. You, you can't set this up any better, I don't think. And so you look at all these crazy providential circumstances coming together that Philip just kind of wanders into, and you can't make Philip the hero of the story. You have to see the way that God is, is leading all these events for Philip to perfectly show up and play this, this really encouraging role that God calls us to, to play in evangelism. So I, for me, it makes me really want to be in more real relationships with unbelievers where I can see these providential circumstances unfold and where I can ha we can have access to each other when these kind of pain points pop up. So that's the first part, God's providence in personal evangelism. Then we see God's providence in his providential call. And when I say call, I'm actually talking about the call on Philip's life. God has a unique way that he calls Philip to go and make disciples. So Luke records that an angel of the Lord has come to him and that angel says, rise and go toward the south to that road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I just want you to think about that for a moment. If you were here, you know, last week specifically, you know that Philip was in the middle of a straight up revival. <laughs> I mean, there, the crazy signs and wonders are happening to the point where the magicians wanted to try and buy that, that buy the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could do these things too. People are giving their lives to Jesus Christ. They're repenting of their sin and not just a few Thousands of people are doing this. An entire people group who has been excluded from the people of God is now included in the people of God. And then here, then here comes God to Philip saying, yeah, I, I actually want you to leave that revival 
and I want you to go to the desert. I mean, for me, that lands very heavily, maybe because God has designed me, I think, to be more of a strategic thinker. Like, I, I, strategy matters a lot to me, so that makes this a very, a very challenging verse. Leave the revival, go to the desert. And so we have to process that. And I don't think what's happening, I don't think God is saying throw out strategy. I think if we're supposed to be shrewd as serpents, there is a, there's a planning piece to that. We want to, have, we want to have plans for how people are going to be discipled, for how uh, the lost are going to be reached, for where churches need to be planted and missionaries need to be sent. But it doesn't matter how good the strategy, there is always something that overrides even the best of our strategies. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. We only know so much. The Holy Spirit knows it all. So there are times where he can tell us and he clearly makes it known to us, yeah, that strategy that you have, that's not what I'm gonna do. And this is, this is one of those moments. And, you know, we started out by saying, you know, we saw that the angel showed up, the angel of the Lord. And so it would be easy for someone to think, well, Jim, that was an angel. That feels like such a unique thing. But no, you go all the way to verse 28. When Philip arrives at the chariot, Luke says, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. The Spirit said. And, and the Spirit, when the Spirit talks to us, you know, sometimes, it, often, it's not audible. Often, it's a feeling. It can, it can look different for a lot of people. You can have maybe, maybe just one person starts popping up in your mind over and over and over again. And that causes you to want to pray for them. And that's God's way of leading you to this person who, who actually you didn't know, but God was working in their life in a really significant way. That, that was, again, part of my story. Or maybe it's just like a, a specific person, people group, or a ministry. becomes You become passionately, uh, you care for that ministry or that people group passionately. And then things that just look crazy to everybody else don't seem that crazy to you. Like some people all of a sudden want to, to go to the other part of the world. And people say, well, how are you going to pay for that? It's like, I don't know. I'll ask my friends. I'll raise support. I, well, what about the language? You don't speak their language. I, I think I can learn it. Well, what, that part of the world is dangerous. I guess the whole world's dangerous if you really think about it. You know, just things that seem illogical or unwise when there's a special calling on your life, you don't see those things. You don't focus on those things. When my wife and I up and moved our three kids, three and under, over to Western Europe, all our friends thought we were crazy. And you know what? Humanly speaking, they were all right. <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy thing to do, except we had a unique call on our life, and it just didn't seem crazy. It did not seem crazy to us. A few weeks ago, we, we celebrated James's call over to Turkey. We got to hear from the Huffmans. I mean, they, they, they are a real example of God calling from the revival to rest. Maybe it could feel like the desert. Next week, we're going to hear from the Valakets. They have just been called out of a very strategic ministry in a different part of the world. So this is something that God does when the Spirit tells us we listen. And he does it for our good and for, all, for the good of the people that we thought we would be ministering to. So he calls in different ways. And it doesn't always necessitate moving. You know, there's this idea like to follow the Spirit in this way just means you're going to end up in a different part of the world, in a different city. Well, that's true for some people like James, but it's not true for all of us. For most of us here, when the Spirit calls us, it's going to change habits. It's going to change places we go. It's going to change the people that we interact with. But that's no less a call, a providential call of the Spirit on us than it is for Philip here. 
So the question I want to ask is, are you in a place where you would be able to hear that call in your life? Because what's clear is Philip has a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. And it's easy to hear the Holy Spirit when you were walking, in Paul's words, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit when we're walking in sin. The call of the Christian is to die to ourselves. And when we say that, die to our carnal, worldly desires, die to those things. It feels like a death to give up some of these things so that we can be filled with the Spirit and we can live for Christ. And, and it's, it's, a, it's not an easy process, but it's a simple process of repenting of your sin and running to Jesus. Repenting of your sin and running to Jesus every day, all the rest of your life. Which is going to seem crazy to the world, because I, I heard one pastor this week say, to the world, the cardinal sin that you can commit is to die to yourself. I mean, the world is saying, be true to yourself. Be who you want to be. You do you. They're not saying die to those things. But Jesus' call is to die to those things so that we can walk in the Spirit and hear clearly when the Spirit gives us this kind of call in our life. And now we get to the climax of the story. And at the climax of the story, we see God's providential gifts. And so I, I should say some of God's providential gifts because not, God has lots of gifts he gives out. But here we see three specifically, the gift of Scripture, the gift of teaching, and the gift of faith. So first, Scripture. Martin Luther had a really interesting way to, uh, to talk about Scripture. He talked about how, we, how God is always speaking through creation. Ever since the beginning, there are things about the nature and the character of God that, that all of creation speaks to. The problem is that we can't hear it. Because of sin, creation is no less proclaiming the wonder and the glory of God today than it ever was. The problem is we don't have ears to hear it in the same way. It's like the best symphony that has ever existed playing the most beautiful song to a bunch of people who do not have the ability to hear. And so God in his mercy decided to speak to us in an even more clear way and that way is his word. And what we see in this story, in this passage, is the Ethiopian is in God's word and not just any part of God's word. Where is he? Isaiah 53. If you don't know Isaiah 53, this is one of the most clear prophecies of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. It's probably one of the most clear passages you can be in if you have just left Jerusalem and you still don't know who was this Jesus? What, who is this Messiah that I've been waiting for? So this is what this is uh, what the Ethiopian is reading the moment Philip walks up. And I, I, I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes for a moment. The Spirit clearly has said, go to this chariot, and all of a sudden you can hear somebody reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. I mean, as Philip's like, I, I know, I know this. I know what's going on. This is amazing. I can't believe I'm walking into this. And it does sound, but the way that Luke recorded, records this, it does sound like the Ethiopian is reading the Greek version of, of this passage, which makes sense because he's not a Hebrew. And in and, and God's providence, Philip, remember, this isn't Philip the apostle, apostle. This is Greek-speaking Philip. So it's, I mean, he's perfectly set up to walk into this situation. And at that time, nobody was expecting a suffering Messiah. 
which is weird when you, it seems odd when you see how clear it is now, but they expected a conquering Messiah, someone who would deliver them from Rome. It was Jesus who came and said, no, this is talking about me. It was Jesus who used this passage to tell them and prepare them for his death. But Psalm 53, or sorry, Isaiah 53 doesn't just tell us that this would happen. It also tells us why. I'm going to read verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. So we see the transaction going on here. We get more of the why. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what Philip's walking into is this guy who's looking for Jesus, who's reading not only about Jesus, but that Jesus came to take on the sins of the world and trade places with us and give us all that he merited as the perfect true son of God. There's no, I don't think there's a, a better place for this guy to be reading and Philip to walk into. God had sovereignly led this Ethiopian to this passage at this time and brought Philip there at this moment. That's pretty crazy. I mean, even in the most ordinary of evangelistic interactions, all this stuff is happening even if you don't see it. And God is giving us this gift of scripture to speak clearly to his people about who he is and who Jesus is and Jesus' work to redeem his people and ultimately all of creation. And that scripture isn't designed to be ingested in isolation or in a vacuum. Now, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not anti-quiet times in the morning. I think have, have our personal time in scripture. But if that's all that we have, we have a deficient Christianity because scripture is meant to be learned in community and specifically with God's second providential gift with teachers. So this Ethiopian, he is trying to understand these scriptures. He doesn't understand it. And with a really humble and sincere heart, he sees Philip and says, hey, can, can you explain this to me? And it wasn't like Philip had some unique uh, prophet-like revelation from God just to the Ethiopian. The thing that made, that made Philip different from all the Pharisees and priests in Jerusalem where he'd just come from and apparently did not hear about Jesus, the thing that made Philip different is that he understood the purpose of the scriptures, that they are here to point to Jesus. And he understood how they pointed to Jesus. So just because he understood the purpose of scripture and how that plays out, he can then enter in and be a teacher for this person wanting to learn the scriptures and who it is that this passage is talking about. God does give us teachers in the church to be able to help us. And, and some are, look more formal, maybe like, like this. But I think most of the teachers that, who have blessed us, they're not vocational pastors. They are normal, everyday people teaching people about Jesus through the scriptures in the coffee shop or whatever it is, in the gym, wherever it is that you live your life. But this has always been the, the way that God has designed the scriptures to go out, to be accompanied by teachers. You go all the way back, I'll give you a few verses. Nehemiah 8.8. 8. They read from the book 
from the law clearly, and they gave the sense. These are the priests. They gave the sense so that people understood the reading. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And teaching is something that all of us can grow in. And we should try to grow in. You may remember the rebuke from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So our hope at this church is that you would have access to that. You would have access to good teaching. But not just good teaching because there's a lot of good teaching on the internet and in books. But good teaching from people who know you who can pray with you, who can listen to you. We need that or else we're ingesting all scripture and content in a vacuum and in isolation. And that's not the way that God's desire designed it to go. So we put a lot of time and resources into our equipping hour classes. So we have, an, they're basically adult education, one during each of the two services. Right now we have one on uh, evangelism and one on Hebrews. And on October 17th, they switch the hour and they'll start over and it, you're, so you don't have to switch hours. You get to hear all the content that's being uh, developed by these faithful teachers. This is the reason that our student ministry is discipleship-based and not just based on fun. Although they have a lot of fun. I have two kids who really enjoy it. The goal is to teach them the scriptures and make disciples who will follow Jesus for the rest of their life. Our hope is that this would be a place where we're not just teaching but developing teachers. I mentioned this in the beginning. I I give up my pulpit more times than I know some people like because we are devoted to teaching teachers and giving uh, young men the opportunity to, to walk with us and learn how to develop a sermon and then to be critiqued afterwards about how did that go and what should you do differently next time. We want to be a church who is developing teachers, not developing a church centered around any one person. And so our hope is that when we have God's providential gift of scripture and it's accompanied by God's providential gift of teachers that the third providential gift will naturally come about and that's a providential gift of faith. So faith is a gift because none of us can find it on our own. None of us can seek it on our own. None of us are good enough or spiritual enough or moral enough to merit faith on our own. I mean, you look at the Ethiopian and you have someone who seems to be seeking. And I think that, that God, God was already doing a work in his heart just to desire to seek. But it's interesting, he couldn't find what he was seeking over in Jerusalem. I have to imagine people were talking about Jesus in that day. I have to imagine people were, you know, buzzing about Jesus. And some people think, well, maybe it's just because this was a Greek speaker and maybe the people who were more excited about Jesus were speaking Aramaic and Hebrew. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Jim Boyce actually thinks that this Ethiopian, Ethiopian would have been very disappointed when he got to Jerusalem because he would have naturally interacted with, uh, because of his status, with the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And and he probably would have, not, not only were they, they didn't believe in Jesus, we know that, and we, but we also know they weren't all that interested in God. They were more interested in power and politics. And so Jim Boyce speculates that he, he probably would have gone there looking for God and been very disappointed to see what he learned. So he's leaving, reading scripture on his own. And we have to ask the question, is it much different today? 
I mean, he was in the academic center of the whole faith. And he's, he does not understand the most, one of the most central passages in the Old Testament. Because they were more concerned about power and politics. Is it different today? Jim Boyce writes, it's not much different today. People go to churches hungering and thirsting after God, but instead of finding God, they find people who are more, concern, more concerned about rules and politics. I mean, if you, if you look at our culture today, the very term evangelical is confusing to what it even means anymore. I mean, it, it, it now takes on this whole political identity that was just not around when evangelical theologians came up with the term as a good way to describe what we believe about the Bible. I know of at least one evangelical church currently taking evangelical out of its name because they don't believe it. That term is a helpful way to describe the call of that church in that city. But here, on the way back home, this Ethiopian meets someone different. He meets someone who, who he isn't he, this he isn't a leader in culture like the Pharisees and Sadducees. He isn't mainly concerned with power and politics. He's a faithful servant of Jesus Christ who understands that the scriptures point to Jesus. And that's the place where this eunuch receives the gift of faith. No voyage, no Mecca, no church attendance, no home environment, no moral or spiritual spiritual ambition will earn you faith. It is a gift of God that none of us can find or attain on our own. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And some people look at this passage and they say, well, look, the Ethiopian clearly had a, he had a humble, soft heart. So by changing his heart, he made himself open to the gospel coming into his life. Well, who changes their own heart? I mean, Paul, to the Roman, quoting to the Romans, says in Romans 3.11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And here it is, no one seeks for God. If you have a heart that longs for God, it's because God's already working that gift inside you ahead of time. And because of that, this should make Christians the most humble people, the most understanding of other worldviews, the most sympathetic when non-believers make decisions that we would disagree with. Because but for the gift of faith in our life, that would be us. So we should be humble. And then with the gift of faith comes baptism. And I do want to really look at what, what's happening here is important and I think largely misunderstood even in the Baptist world. What's happening with this Ethiopian is a fundamental development in, in, the, in the covenants. So baptism is a covenantal sign that you are a part of God's people. It's a sign. And so the sign in the old covenant was circumcision. The sign in the new covenant is baptism. And it's always a sign that you are a part of the people of God. Well, Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 says that there was a problem in the old covenant. The problem wasn't with the covenant, it was with the people because the sign was be, being given to, uh, to babies and what happened was that the people of God became this mixed bag of believers and unbelievers. And that, that Paul said, that's not good. The covenant's supposed to be all believers. So think about on the old covenant, how did you enter the, old, the, the, 
how did you enter the people of God? How did you become a part of the people of God? You were born. That's all you did. So how do you become a part of the people of God in the new covenant? You're reborn. So there's this, this, there's this consistency between circumcision and baptism, but the entry point changed because the, the covenant, because the new covenant has arrived. And I have, pre, I have lots of Presbyterian friends. I went to RTS. My wife goes to RTS. We have Presbyterians in this church. Ligon Duncan preached here. I'm not, not, but please hear me. Not only is there not one recorded instance of babies being baptized in the New Testament, but the deeper question that we need to ask is if we're just going to throw up baptism the same way as circumcision, then what is new about the new covenant? All right, I went there. Baptism (laughs) is a sign, a public sign now of the miraculous work that Jesus has done in our hearts and I get asked often, so when do we apply baptism? Like, what, what does that look like? I think the Ethiopian eunuch is actually re- gives us really good boundaries here. You know, we, we, we want there to be a credible uh, profession of faith where or an older, more mature Christian can hear it and process that. That, that has to happen. We don't want to be throwing out baptisms like Oprah throws prizes out. I mean, we, we need to, there needs to be a, a measure of uh, prudence and knowing these people and hearing what's going on. But we don't need to make the bar much higher than professing faith in Jesus. So it's, you know, it's, we're coming up on our 30th anniversary, which is also the 30th anniversary of Nevermind. So uh, I think it's only good and right to quote the great theologian Kurt Cobain, who said, take your time, but hurry up. And I'm sure when he wrote those words, he was meditating on John Calvin, who was talking about baptism. And John Calvin said, you should be baptized without undue haste, but without undue delay at the same time. So by God's grace, uh, it does look like we'll have some baptisms at our 30th anniversary on November 7th. And so for some of you here today, maybe today is the first time that you desire the gift of faith. And if you desire it, God's already working in your heart. And that can happen today. And then the next faith step for you would be baptism. And for some of you, you accepted that gift of faith at some other time. Or, and, and now the next step of faith for you is also baptism. I'll let the Holy Spirit talk to you about that. But at the end of this passage, there are two things very quickly that that can hijack someone's reading of this and and kind of take our focus way off of personal evangelism, which is what we see going on here. And the first is if people were used to reading the King James and then go to the NIV or the ESV, you're going to realize there's no verse 37. Verse 37 disappeared. People are like, who has the right to just take a verse out of the Bible? Well, you need to know a little bit about how the, the, how the Bible, how your modern translations are developed. So the King James Bible is a masterful work of science and art. It, it really is. The, the more you study how it came about, it's unbelievable. But the truth is now we have access to more ancient manuscripts than they did back at that time. And so now we know more and we're fairly confident that verse 37, because it's not in any of the oldest manuscripts that we have, it was actually added early on. And it makes a lot of sense because verse 37, if you can go back and read it in the King James, it was a part of the baptismal liturgy in the early church. So it makes sense that some scribe would say, surely Philip (laughs) used this liturgy. So I'm just going to, it might be awkward that we use something that Philip didn't use. So I'm just going to put it in right there. 
It's, you can trust your Bible. We have so many manuscripts now, but that's why there's no verse 37. And then verse 39, this one gets talked about a lot. Um, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So maybe swoosh, Philip was gone, maybe. It was in Harry Potter, it's called apparating or disapparating or side, I'm gonna mess that up. But like Harry Potter style, whoosh, gone. I, I, I'm open to miracles. I, I think the natural reading is a little simpler here in the same way that the spirit led Philip to this chariot in the same way the spirit led Philip away, rejoicing, and they never saw each other again. I think that's what's going on. But what we need to focus on and not get distracted by those two things is that we see Philip altering his approach, but he doesn't alter his message. He's explaining Jesus from the scriptures to someone who has ears to hear it. We see the loosening of the bonds between the faith in Jerusalem and we see the gospel going to the world in simultaneously the most supernatural and the most natural, ordinary ways possible. So it stands out to me the most in the passage because I, I, want, to be, I want to be fruitful in many ways, specifically personal evangelism. If we're to look at Philip as this model of personal evangelism, I see that it's not just about what you know, it's about who you know. Because the, these Pharisees back in Jerusalem, they had all the scriptures, but they were unable to use them rightly to point this person to God in Jesus Christ. But Philip seems to have this walk with God that is so, so pure and right that he can, hear, he can hear God's leading and his pushing into, like, like away from all things that seem logical. Leave the revival. Go over here to the desert and I'm going to use you in a supernatural way. We are never going to be open to that if we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be saturated in scripture. And I'm for being saturated in scripture. We, but we can be saturated in scripture and still miss Christ. We can, we can be a Christian living in sin, not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and not experience any of these providential things in our life because we don't know how to hear from the Holy Spirit because we're not walking in his power. We're not filled with his spirit. So for me, the takeaway, if we want to be fruitful in this way, is to lean into Christ, to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, die to ourselves, live to Christ, and then we're in this relationship with Jesus where we can hear so clearly. Many of you have these stories. If I had more time, I'd tell a few of my own, but I don't. Walk with Jesus, be filled with his spirit, and you will be amazed at the things that God will start showing you and doing around you to use you for the glory of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we come here to acknowledge that you are the hero, the hero of the story. Philip isn't the hero, we're not the hero, you are the hero and you have decided to allow us to be a part of what you are accomplishing in this world. And we pray that today you would... Um, you would give us this overflow of desire to receive the gift of faith, walk in that gift, be filled in the power of your Holy Spirit, and to really desire to tell other people about Jesus, to teach your scriptures to them. And I pray that you would just give us crazy opportunities, just things that are so far beyond anything we could have created, that we would get to come together and tell those stories. Because 
they would be one more reminder of the truth of this, this passage. You are providentially leading everything, and you have decided in your sovereignty that we get to be a real part of it. We thank you, and we thank you that being a part of that process only drives us to you even more. We love you.